Welcome to the Finance Cafe, the business podcast for women entrepreneurs that breaks through the money taboo and explores what's behind the numbers. Join your hosts, founders of the Finance Cafe, Shannon Peston and Shauna Frederick, every week as they dive into conversations about business and finance with women entrepreneurs and the experts that support them. With their combined experience in finance and accounting, Shannon and Shauna know financial management is more than numbers, but rather the combination of our lived experience, skills, attitudes and behaviors, and how these come together to shape the financial decisions we make along our entrepreneurial journeys. It's about uncovering the story of our businesses, being empowered by our decisions and unlocking our full potential as entrepreneurs. Here at Finance Cafe, we're changing the way we talk about finance and empowering women entrepreneurs to see their business in a new light. One story and one number at a time. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us on another episode of the Finance Cafe podcast. My name is Shauna Frederick, and I'll be your host today. In Canada, November is Financial Literacy Month. It's a time when we'll be encouraged to invest in our own financial well-being. For us at the Finance Cafe, financial empowerment is at the heart of our business. As women entrepreneurs ourselves, we know that for most of us, there's more to the bottom line than money. That our businesses provide a path to reaching our goals, meeting our responsibilities, and being able to take care of the people and things we care about most. Through our programming and conversations, we're here to help you connect to the full story of your business and what lives behind and beyond the numbers. Leading up to and through Financial Literacy Month, we'll be hosting new conversations that promote a better understanding of money and the role it plays in our businesses. Helping us bring this special seven-week series to life is BDC, the Bank for Canadian Entrepreneurs. Today, we're diving into the topic of fundraising with Brooke Harley, founder and CEO at Class Rebel. Brooke, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. I love the mission of your company, and um, it really is a pleasure to talk about this topic. I love talking about it. It's so fascinating, all the dynamics involved and all the technical pieces, too. There's a lot to learn, and I am honored to be here sharing what I know about it. Now, you have an extensive background, which we'll get into, and I want to dive right into the conversation. But first, I'd like to share some startling statistics. Despite evidence that diverse and women-led teams outperform men-led ones, the massive venture capital funding gap between startups founded by men and women has hardly closed in the last few years. Women-owned businesses currently receive just 2.8% of venture capital or VC funding available worldwide, an estimated 4% of VC funding in Canada, and only 2.2% in the United States. Women are also underrepresented among equity investors, representing only 15.2% of Canadian VC partners and 16.7% of Canadian angel investors. Now, Brooke, I know these statistics aren't new to you, but I'm excited to see the work you and your team are doing at Class Rebel to change these statistics. So why don't you share a bit more about you, why you started Class Rebel, and what you and the team are doing to create systemic change in the venture capital space. Yes, thanks for this. So I started off my career with a little love affair of the law. I was actually a corporate lawyer working for big firms. 
And one of the first things I learned was how to draft a stock option plan. Well, that led me to negotiating stock options with the CFO of Lululemon when I was incoming for my role there. And sure enough, a few years later, I ended up with a windfall from that stock option negotiation. And what I kept thinking about was, wow, what if you could find the next Lululemon before anyone knew about it? And I still have my letter from 2010 that I wrote to Danny Reese trying to get into Canada Goose. I'm embarrassed. We don't know each other well enough for me to read it out. But I did read it the other day and I'm like, I'm embarrassed. And I wrote my little letter trying to get into, you know, with my baby check into Canada Goose. And this was before Bain found it and took it public. But, you know, I was right. I was right. My instinct was right. And Bain took it public. Everyone made a lot of money. And I still love that brand, Canada Goose. But one thing I didn't know at the time was staging, right? It didn't occur to me that that was really already what we would call today a Series B or a Series C stage company that would not be that interested in my baby check. Ultimately, my first angel investment was in a, an earlier stage company out of Vancouver called Native Shoes. And that's how I got involved in angel investing. And it was a larger investment. So I spent time on the board and I got some experience there. And that led to leaving Lemon and raising a $32 million fund. And it was 900 no's, 100 yeses. Um, the government came in to back us as well. But, you know, the story takes a dark turn. I'll leave it at the partners had a big food fight and the whole thing came down. And it taught me a lot. I made a lot of mistakes there. And to put something positive in place of that really painful event, I put together the first class called Fundraising 101 because it doesn't take long as an investor to see, you know, who really gets a chance with that venture money. It, it is truly mostly men. And it's also folks from Harvard, Wharton, and Stanford. So I think there's a class system at play as well. So Fundraising 101 was born to level the playing field. You know, anyone who wants to raise money for a startup should be able to understand how it actually works. And then maybe we can get more diversity if people feel confident that they could at least navigate the conversation. And even though the company only had one course at the time, I named the company Class Rebel. Should more ideas, you know, come to me? And the name of the company Class Rebel is really a nod to a rebellion on a class system. You know, who has access to this kind of education um, and who doesn't? And really leveling the playing field here because I think the bias is overt as it comes. Brooke, I so appreciate, again, that you are creating systemic change. You're leveling the playing field. Because for so many VCs, angel investors, they will often look to women to change the way that they are doing things. And you're saying, no, it is not about women having to change the way that we're pitching. It's about leveling the playing field and giving them the opportunity to understand and learn that language. So thank you for the work that you and your team are doing. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So I'm just curious, we talked about the statistics about women being underrepresented and receiving less VC dollars, but why do you think women entrepreneurs are receiving such a small portion of those VC funds? That's such a great question. Why do I think that? Well, firstly, let's just start with how the world is set up generally. I think it's safe to say that 99.9% of all capital in the world is is managed you know, by men and women don't have you know, access to capital and aren't making big decisions with capital generally, like the world is not set up that way. So when women are pitching for money, you know, it's not just about building whatever company they're building, you're asked when you're pitching for money as a founder, you're asking to be a money manager. You're essentially saying for every dollar that you give me, 
I will return $10 to you, $20 to you down the line. And frankly, there's no pattern of recognition in that because women don't manage money anywhere. They don't control big sums of money. So to give women money to manage, which is what you're doing when you give money to an entrepreneur, is there's simply not enough great examples of that turning out well for investors. And so I think that's a big part of why women don't, is that there's not a lot of successful outcomes to point to because historically women don't manage money. And raising money for your startup is asking to manage money. And again, like you pointed out, I mean, if men are managing the pot to give out, it's that, you know, see it, be it, and, you know, they will tend to allocate the funds towards people or individuals that they resonate with. And I think it's interesting that you pointed to Harvard because a 2014 study from Harvard asked investors to choose projects based on pitch presentations where they only heard the voices of the entrepreneur. And that really allowed researchers to test the reactions to men and women voices doing the exact same presentation. And male founders were chosen at more than twice the rate of women, which is discouraging. (laughs) And so again, going back to why you started Class Rebel and Fundraising 101, love this. Listen, education can't solve bias. It can't solve bias. But what we think that it can do is it can imbue people with the confidence to push against it. So more women will go up to bat with this knowledge under their belt, with this confidence, because trust me, if you don't know the mechanics and language of venture capital, it will be so easy to step away from the plate because you've told yourself, well, I actually don't understand the complexity of this, you know, and it's like, well, if once you've taken fundraising 101 and you're done Thursday night, you can't tell yourself that story anymore. And so it just, I think we can imbue people with the confidence to push against this very overt bias, which is so overdue for change. And one stat that I love, since we're talking stats, is that female-led companies are often you know, more successful, more capital efficient. Well, definitely more capital efficient. And I'm not the first to say this. I think I heard it from Jen Hyman and Retham Runway. Of course, women are more capital efficient. We don't get too many chances here. So we're so careful with the dollars. We're the absolute financial police because we don't get too many shots. I love that. And I love that knowledge can't solve bias. That's what it was, right? Knowledge can't solve the bias. We're saying saying education can't solve bias. You know, the bias is inherent. It's been there for hundreds of years as to who controls resources. But what we think education can do is imbue people with the confidence to push against the bias to go up to bat and be in the fundraising conversations because at least you know how this all works. Yeah, we're trying to create that systemic exchange at the Finance Cafe as well because it is about, first of all, the education, but also building that confidence. And the more we know, the greater that confidence can build so you can play in that same sandbox. So I, I love that. Let's go back to sort of the, the fundamentals of, of fundraising in BC. So let's clarify, first of all, what a VC or investor angel is. So what's the difference between the two? Yeah, this is one of the foundational concepts we cover on the first night. And the biggest difference, I believe, between an angel and VC, and there's a few, but the biggest difference I always point to is that an angel is managing their own money and VCs are managing other people's money. So there's a higher professional responsibility on VCs and, you know, ultimately they want to raise more and more funds. That's how they make money. And so VCs can often be even more helpful than angels because they've honed their networks. Uh, They know other people controlling capital. They can help 
be very helpful in raising money. They've made efforts to connect to big companies like Meta to help with digital marketing. So VCs essentially are managing other people's money. They can be a lot more helpful, but they'll also want to take seats on the board and they can be, you know, from the eyes of the founder, they also can be hurtful when they've got board seats. That's a lever of control that founders really need to learn about. Mm-hmm. It only takes one board seat. It only takes one to start pumping the brakes on what founders want to do. So you have to be very careful about giving out those board seats. Yeah, for sure. So is there a difference then when when a founder is pitching to a VC versus an angel or is the pitch essentially the same? That's a great question. What I tell folks is that sophisticated angels think no differently than VCs. So when you go out to pitch, we want you coming out of Fundraising 101, our course, with your materials at VC grade. And what that means is whoever you're pitching to in your very first round, we want the materials to look so good, the pitch deck to be so honed, the forecast to be so well thought out and well done, your data room to be so complete that a VC would be surprised by how good you are. Because sophisticated angels and VCs don't think differently, in my opinion. They have different responsibilities. They can have a different return profile and and time horizon. But in my opinion, the ones I've come across think very similar to VCs. So when you're pitching, you have to be ideally pitching at VC grade. I love that. So essentially, it's regardless of who you're pitching to, coming in with the confidence and the pitch deck so that they're coming back and saying, how can I not invest in this particular company? Yeah, we want you coming out of this course looking like you've done this before. You should be able to knock the socks off investors with your sophistication coming out of this course. And we've heard the feedback, you know, that that VCs, in fact, have been surprised at how, you know, sophisticated our founders have appeared. And, And I think, you know, that's part of being able to raise money is that you understand their world so that they feel comfortable with you as a money manager. It will never be openly discussed that, you know, you're a money manager on top of being the CEO of a tech firm or a footwear firm. It'll never be put like that. But it's between the lines that, you know, you're asking to be an asset manager. So showing up like one and understanding their vocab and how it works from their lens, I think gets you a long way when you're asking for money. You talked about no matter how many times you you pitch, you want it to be as pristine as possible. So can we talk about how hard it can be to get funding? Sure. You know, when we were raising a fund, it was 900 no's and 100 yeses. And I'm not exaggerating. And, you know, I had a day-to-day partner in that fund. And so she and I just quit on different days. You know, it was the rejection level was very hard. And then with Class Rebel, I moved to New York in 2019. And I was able to get a term sheet, you know, as a solo female founder, I was able to be offered one, you know, within weeks of pitching. But I was aware of the level of rejection required for that. And I also had a very strong point of view on what VCs would be looking for. Now, ultimately, we didn't take that term sheet. Some other conditions didn't feel right at the time. But the point is, is that you can polish your materials and your pitch to the point of really just being an idea and getting VC funding. I love that you're bringing up, yes, it was the 900 no's and it's hard to keep going. We had a guest on our podcast last year, uh, Bobby Reset with Virtual Gurus here in Calgary. Mm-hmm. And she was turned down approximately 170 times. Mm-hmm. So it's this notion, it's hard, but it, it could eventually happen. And it's how do you keep that that courage and that confidence to just keep moving forward? 
I think it's really important to have at least one other person with you. And it doesn't have to be a a co-founder, but at least someone that is working with you even part-time on the business so that there's more than just you that believes in this and is working on it. Something to make the company feel real when it's in its earliest days is something that helped me. So I can tell you, Michelle Phillips, my former colleague at Lululemon, she was the absolute first employee at the fund. And so when you're raising a $32 million fund, there's the part of that where you don't actually manage any capital. (laughs) And so, and you're trying to attract partners to it and like you're trying to get folks to believe in it. And so just having Michelle there day-to-day working with me on our website and some of the articles we were posting made it feel a little bit real. And then of course, in Class Rebel, Michelle came over and was the first there. So she's been a total rock. I don't even think I've told her this. She's been a rock in starting things because at least one other person believes in what you're doing. It helps to keep going. When we think about rejection, can founders go back to the VCs or angels to get feedback as to why they were rejected? Some VCs are going to give it to you straight. And I think those are the most professional kind. But I do think a lot of them take the approach of, you know, why don't we give a blanket response of, oh, you're just too early? Because the strategy there is to maintain a friendly relationship so that should there be a chance in the future, should this company risk other people's money and actually make something of themselves, they want to hang around the hoop in the nicest way possible so that they can get a chance maybe on the Series A. But I'll tell you, the VCs that I would want to most work with, now we're not taking you know VC money. We've got, I think, contracts in lieu of those raises. But when I have been raising money, the VCs that I've really appreciated the most have given me the goods straight. You know, I had one really well-known education VC firm say to me, listen, I think you're onto something in adult education, but I can't pattern recognize it because I really have only invested in K to 12 in college. So I, I don't doubt you're wrong, Brooke, but she's like, I can't pattern recognize this one. So I'm going to have to pass. How refreshing a response, you know, just saying the real reason why she didn't feel comfortable. I think it's so important for VCs to be kind and forthright with founders. And I think a lot of GPs, if they've been involved in raising a fund from scratch, they have that empathy. Which is, I mean, I, I love that you say that. And I think it's for any VCs out there listening. It, it's it's helpful to the founder and it could potentially help you into the future. Yes, the founder likely doesn't want to hear that right now, but they can then take that information and improve upon it to potentially come back with a stronger pitch next time. So thank you for sharing that because I do think it's important that we're providing that honest, open feedback so that we can learn from it. It would be great, but I my experience is most investors will have a strategy of dodging that to preserve an investment opportunity because they believe that is a better way to preserve an investment opportunity. Whereas I actually think Founders, we fall in love with the people that are just honest and direct with us. Again, it's that systemic change that you're trying to create. We're going back to maybe the type of industry. So there are there specific industries or companies that should or shouldn't look for, for VC or angel funding? It's a great question. So I would say that I don't think there's any particular industries that should or shouldn't look for funding. What's happening now is, you know, tech, which was 
originally where this asset class formed around was, you know, investing in innovation and tech exclusively. But now what you've seen, especially in the last 10, 15 years is, you know, tech meets insurance, tech meets healthcare, tech meets consumer, you name it, tech's disrupting it. And so that intersection is getting funded. So I think every industry under the sun has been funded by tech, whether it's suitcases like Away, you know, or it's insurance tech like Lemonade. Where I would say the type of thing that's not appropriate for going after VC funding is that it, that if you're not so ambitious as to be aiming for about 100 million in revenue in five years, there is a page in the deck where you have a financial forecast. And we talk about this in the class, the, where the VC's eyes move very quickly on that five-year forecast summary. And the first is to check your revenues over time and what you're aiming for by year five. If you're not aiming for 100 million, then you're not really offering the potential return that is commensurate with the risk that you're asking a VC to take right now. So that's where I would say it's not a particular industry that should be excluded from going after this. But if you're not ambitious and aiming for that, you're not really going to get too far in the process. So it's going back to the business goals. And as you mentioned from the start, you're managing money and the people that you're managing the money for would like to see a return on their investment. So they're going to want to see your business and your personal and your business goals to see where those revenue forecasts are going. So I love that you I love that you've tied that together. So Brooke, at the Finance Cafe, we talk a lot about how financial statements tell the story of your business. So how is it important is it when you're pitching to tell the story of your business, you know, like sharing the problem and the solution that you're bringing to the table? Yeah, I would say that pitch decks are quite formulaic. There's about 12 things that should be in the pitch deck. VCs will only give your pitch deck on average two and a half to three minutes of a look. And they're looking for very specific things. And so while I know a lot of founders would buck the feeling of being confined and formulaic to 12 things, you really have to consider the investors when you have a pot of money, they're being hit from every angle for their attention. So when they do go look at your pitch deck, they want to see the 12 things are knocked off, you know, very quickly. There's very specific things they're looking for. And if you don't have them, you actually look like a rookie, right? And the goal of our course is to make you look like you've done this before. So in in the deck, the five-year forecast, the summary of it is one page that has to do with finance, but another one is use of proceeds, right? If you're raising two and a half million, the investors want to develop their own point of view on your judgment about the buckets that you're going to put that capital in. I can tell you in 2019, right after WeWork went down and in my raise, I had a million going to real estate. Most of them didn't like it and they wouldn't invest on that basis. They had an opinion about the use of proceeds. So there's very specific things that VCs are looking for and part of them are financial and part of them are, are about the industry and the products themselves. And the individuals behind the products. For sure. And the team. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So going back to the financial and the projections and the pitch and the importance of it, there's other items that need to be in there, but you talked about revenue projections, you talk about use of proceeds, so how the founder is, is using the funds. Anything else with respect to the financial information that potential VCs are really looking for? Well, let me say this to founders. The first person you want to prove to that this business is going to make money over time is yourself. And so the more detailed your forecast that you can build, or you can hire someone to build for you, the better. 
because what you achieve by really researching your business industry and getting to know the costs of what's going to drive the revenues is you can assure yourself that over time this makes money and you're not wasting all of your effort and putting yourself through this level of sacrifice. So that's the first thing. But if you if you really come at it with lots of research and your forecast is really detailed and you've proven it to yourself that this makes money, then it's really hard to trip you up when you're being asked about it by VCs. And the more confidence you project, the more you've thought about this, the more you've answered questions on this before in your own mind, that confidence will translate into a VC pitch of like, this is well thought out, it makes sense. I can tell you, you know, I think we, I could take a lot from the playbook of apparel, which was what I'm from and going into education. But one thing I really had to sense check was the margins were coming out on education as high 80s or mid to high 80s. I was like, that seems really high. And I checked it with a few folks in my network, ed tech investors, and they're like, it could be as high as 90, Brooke. So I knew we were on the right track. When when we had real estate in the model in New York, I was down to, you know, not just price per square foot on a lease in Flatiron at that time, down to the wiring, down to the internet, right? Down to the trash being taken out of the physical spot. So the more detailed, you know, you can get the better. And all of this, you know, a VC grade pitch deck and a VC grade forecast, this is about 12 weeks worth of heavy lifting from a team to get this grade of materials. And yeah, so it's it's coming back to the importance of, first of all, you're pitching to yourself first. So let's pitch to ourselves. Let's be confident and comfortable. And we know the information and then building it out from there. I, I love that. I love that analogy. So when we think about preparing the pitch deck, what's the first step when thinking about putting together the pitch deck? So where should they start? One thing we talk about in class is that venture investors think from macro to micro. And what I mean by that is when they think macro, they're thinking about an industry, the dynamics in the industry, where there can be disruption, where there's an open swim lane of opportunity. And then when I say they think micro, that starts to get more into, okay, this particular startup in this particular industry, what does it have to offer? How is it competitively positioned? And so you're essentially you know, the way that investors think is this from macro industry to micro positioning of the company. So I say you might as well organize your pitch deck that way because that's how they think. So that usually involves opening with what problem in the industry are you solving that no one's taken on yet? But there's another way to frame that. You may not feel comfortable saying it's a problem you're solving. You may want to say, well, there's an open swim lane of opportunity. When I got the term sheet for my education company, I framed adult education as the crustiest industry on the planet that no one seemed to want to improve. It was an open swim lane of opportunity. You know, you can make this cool as hell and you can make it affordable for people. It doesn't need to be so embarrassing that no one would ever associate themselves with it. So opening with the problem or what the open swim lane that you're going after in an industry is a great place to start. And then getting into the market size, right? Why is market size so important to an investor? Again, you know, they want you to be able to get quick traction, quick revenues, so that they can potentially get a return that's commensurate with the risk that you're taking. So this is macro conversation, right? Problem that you're solving in an industry or what the open swim lane is in an industry. How big is this market? How big could it be? For some of you, that won't be hard to put a pin in of how big the market is. For education, it's pretty well known. But think of the founder of Peloton 12 years ago. 
no one even used the phrase connected fitness. And this guy's going around, he suffered lots of rejection too. And was like, how big is the market for people riding bikes alone in their basement? You know what I mean? Like, but all together in a connected inner way, kind of way, like bananas, right? But you have to go after the market size and and try and come up with something compelling, hopefully in the billions of dollars and something that can be accessed globally, not just locally. I love that analogy because you're absolutely right. For some cases, there is. There's lots of research and lots of data out there. But when you have an innovative, brand new something that you're bringing to market, market size can be very hard to, to to come up with, but it's coming up with something is the key. How are you going to pitch this to your VCs? So you talked about market opportunity, market size as sort of some must-haves. What are, what are three other must-haves that must be in the pitch deck? So one is the team. I've had investors say to me, you know, as a solo female founder, I would rather invest in a fantastic team with a mediocre idea than a solo founder with a great idea. So a lot of investors believe in teams. And so even if you are a solo founder, you're going to want to have pre-identified your key lieutenants and even bring them in a pitch with you. The optics of a team are a much better look than going completely solo. Now, I was offered a term sheet with no team at all, but that is a miracle. Going forward, if we were going to raise more money, I'd definitely go with a full you know, peacock of how many people we have supporting us. So I think teams is critical. Another one is the competitive landscape. You know, how are you different from what's out there? They're going to do their own research, but that's a must have on where you sit in the competitive landscape and how you're different. Another one is your customer acquisition strategy. Do you have any tricks up your sleeve to acquire customers organically? Because if your plan is to take a bunch of money and just throw it down the drain with Google and Facebook, that doesn't really impress um, investors too much. You know, digital marketing is one of the greatest places to burn investor money and get no return. So to the extent you have any hacks at all in figuring out how you're going to acquire customers organically in bulk, you know, that is what they're listening for. And we've definitely at Class Rebel figured out how to do that. And it was something we just learned over time. One thing led to another. So having a better plan, then we're just going to take quarter of this raise and throw it at Facebook, hoping for a good ROAS. The dynamics don't look that good, you know, these days for that. For a plan. That's so great. And I'll add on to those, those five that you just mentioned, also the need for how you're spending the funds that you're raising and your revenue projections. So those are you know seven key things that Brooke has provided with respect to what should go into a really great pitch. So you talked about the team. So who are three key people or resources women entrepreneurs should really add to their team, in your opinion? So I think this is industry specific, but There's a role called head of product. And usually what that is referring to is who is the technical lead building the platform that facilitates people viewing the product, people buying the product. And so that that person is often called head of product, which if you're not from tech, which I wasn't, I found that confusing because I I hear head of products and I think, oh, that's you're the head of whatever you're selling. No, head of product is known amongst you know VCs as the guy or gal that's building the platform that facilitates browsing, purchasing, researching, that kind of thing. So a technical head of product is usually a key role that has to be there. And then, of course, you're going to have the head of 
whatever it is that you make, right? So Nigel Goodwin at our company is the chief education officer. We also in the future may refer to him as the chief content officer, just like they do at Netflix, right? We produce content, educational content for the public, but also for private corporations and governments. So having someone who is really overseeing the development and production of whatever it is you sell, however it makes sense to call that person, you know, for us, it's the chief education officer. So the third one I would say is when is also marketing. How are you getting the word out on your product? Because it can be the best thing that ever happened. But if you don't have a concerted strategy on spreading the word on it, it may not ever be discovered to the scale that it should have been. So those three come up for me. Love those three. And just one one more question because I've taken up a lot of your time. So how important is it? I mean, getting the money is important, but how important is it to find the right funder for your business? Because it's not all about the money, is it? No, ideally, these folks bring both money and expertise and networks. And so I think, you know, when I had my fund, we were popular and had a lot of inbound because my first 50 investors were executives from Lululemon or David's Tea or Aldo Shoes. So we were popular with founders because of the networks and expertise that we had in in consumer and apparel. So those are always the most ideal investors. And they don't necessarily have to be VCs. Some of the best investors you'll ever get are angels who built and sold a business in the exact space that you have. They can be the best because of their true networks and expertise. They've done it. And also because angels would have a different time horizon. They don't they may not ride you as hard or be as critical or so that would to me, you know, we talk about, about in fundraising one on one on one, the idea of renting names, which sounds a bit derogatory, but it's like, well, you know, if Chewy.com could get the founder of Zulily out of Seattle, those are both marketplaces, right? And Mr. Vedon had built and sold two marketplaces, an IPO two marketplaces. So he was an ideal investor because of his actual operating experience in building and IPOing a marketplace. That's the best if you can get those folks. And you talked about at the top, you know, many VCs will want to sit on your board. So you want to make sure that you have the comfort of the information that they're going to want to see and how hard they're going to push you. So I love that you brought in the networking piece because it shouldn't be all about the money because these are partners that you're now going into business with. Well, for sure. And this is something else we talk about in fundraising 101. You know, when I was raising money in 2019 in New York and I did have that VC offer, I will tell you what I could piece together is that no VC could really insist on taking a board seat unless they were leading the round with a check of a million dollars. So, you know, I think founders should have a point of view of what kind of level of investment an investor actually needs to make to say that comes with a board seat. You know, my investment's conditional on the board seat. Anything less than a million at the seed stage seems off market. I love that you've added that piece of advice. So when you're going in with your pitch, understanding, okay, here's what you will need to do in the back of your mind. Here's what the VC or angel would need to do in order to have a seat at the table of my board of directors. So love that. Love that advice. Brooke, I've taken up so much of your time and I so appreciate you giving this information to our listeners. And I understand that you have a free giveaway for our listeners on your website, which we'll share in the show notes. It's a free one hour fundraising 101 tutorial. Is that is that correct? We do have, yeah, we do have the fundraising 101 mini class online. You can sign up for that and it gives you a free hour of 
some of the things we're going to talk about that. And if you like it, you know, you can sign up for the full course. We Fundraising 101 runs live every single month and it's $99. That's it. And it's pay once a 10 forever. So we go two hours live four nights in a row. And if it feels like drinking from from a fire hose, just come back the next month and the next month and the next month, however long it takes to cement the learnings, we've got you. I love that you're offering that. And again, making that accessible learning and creating systemic change in the space. So Brooke, thank you so much. Where can our listeners, first of all, where can they find that information? We'll put it in the show notes, but find that information and learn more about you and Class Rebel. Yeah, classrebel.com is where we're at. And go to the Fundraising 101 page in our course offerings and you'll find the mini class there. You can sign up for it. Thank you so much. And again, thank you BDC for supporting our special series on financial literacy. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in and tune in next week for another episode of the Finance Cafe. Thanks for listening to the Finance Cafe podcast. Want to dig deeper? As a valued listener, we'd love to offer you an exclusive discount to our financial literacy program. Use the code PODCAST10 to get 10% off. Visit thefinancecafe.ca to join or to take our free financial literacy quiz. We would be so grateful if you could show some love for your favorite financial podcast. Just like, subscribe, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you're listening from and help other listeners like you connect with us. See you again next week on the Finance Cafe Podcast.